I don't know if you all know the history of that hymn. Uh, Washington Gladden, who wrote it, wrote it during a time when his denomination was arguing about some things. And there's another verse in there. Oh, master, let me walk with thee beside the noisome Pharisee. And he's talking about the Pharisees and his denomination. It's a verse that has been lost to history, which I guess is a good thing. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I uh, want to just start by saying I'm very thankful for the chance to be here again. I am very, very deeply appreciative of our church. Um, I think I say this each time that I speak here once a year or so, but this church was a significant part of our decision-making about whether we ought to come to Houghton or not. And um, we have been here for 10 years now, and uh, it's hard to imagine that's the case. But um, we are so thankful for the decade that we have been here, um, for the way in which God has used this time and all of you to redefine friendship in our lives. We are thankful uh, for the way that Pastor Wes and the whole pastoral team have given us an outlet to use our gifts and have called forth gifts that we didn't know we had a decade ago. And um, for Jill and I, this is also our 20th wedding anniversary this week. So these two distinct decades that we kind of look back on in our time. And um, we are, I was telling Jill the other night, I think the third decade will look more like this decade, but we don't, we don't really know that, do we? So I, I just want to thank God for the last decade. I want to enjoy the blessings of today. Well, I want to um, turn our minds toward this morning's text, and I think it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. It begins when someone asks a question, which is actually kind of an unusual question for someone to ask Jesus. It's not the kind of question that you would picture someone coming to ask a religious leader or a wise sage. It's more a question that you would imagine someone asking a civil judge. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. We don't know if this is a younger brother coming and sort of pleading for equal treatment because the older siblings usually got better treatment uh, in matters of an estate or of a will. So that could be it. We don't really know what prompts this question. And like I say, it's a sort of an odd question for someone to ask Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, in the NRSV, it says friend, but here we've seen Man or human, it's rather a rather a dismissive word. Friend is kind of a friendly translation. Human, who has made me a judge over you? Why are you asking me, in other words, this question? And it leads into Jesus sharing this important teaching. Be on your guard, he says, against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, I'm sure that as Jesus leads into this object lesson, this man just wants to crawl into a corner because he did not know what he was asking. And he did not know that he was going to become the pointed end of an object lesson for this whole crowd. After this, Jesus shares this very important parable, which is at least in part about greed. He says, a rich man's land produces abundantly, which on its own is very good news. But he thinks to himself... What should I do? Because I have no place to store my crops. Now, I first want you to notice that the man is talking to himself. That's going to become very important in this sermon as we look at this parable more deeply. He says, I have no place to store my crops. And this betrays a certain lack of imagination. Right? There are all kinds of places where one could store his crops. As he's already wealthy, he could start by storing them in the bellies of the poor. But that doesn't even seem to be an option for him. 
Perhaps if he had talked to the poor and not to himself, they could have reminded him of this. Then he continues, though, to talk to himself. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods there. And I will say, this is the NRSV, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is quite meta. The man is talking to himself about talking to himself at a future time. This is very impressive work here. I mean, I talk to myself, but rarely do I talk to myself and say, when I talk to myself later, this is what I'm going to say. And yet this is what this man is doing. It's quite meta. So the rich man here shows a very interesting and actually rather toxic combination of characteristics. On the one hand, he has a stunning lack of generosity. He doesn't say to himself, well, I I could give this away or I could keep it. And he's also a little bit lazy, right? What I want to do now, he says, is to eat and drink and be merry, to take life easy, to enjoy things. And, And on its own and in small doses, this isn't a problem. But this man is going to a lot of trouble and doing a lot of work to ensure that he doesn't have to work anymore. He's close-fisted and stingy and also lazy at the same time. But essentially, the problem boils down to this. He can't imagine anything outside himself. I think sometimes when we hear this parable, we think that the man simply made the wrong decision. But I don't think that this parable is primarily to be understood at the level of application. I don't think this parable is primarily about the decision that this person made, option A or option B. I think the issue at play is, who is playing into my decision-making process? Who is helping me make this important decision? The man faces two Significant questions. What do I do with all this grain? And do I retire or do I keep working? And as he's thinking this through, he can only think of one person smart enough to consult himself. It hasn't, it's not like he's cruel. And sometimes we think this parable is about someone who's exceptionally cruel. He's not cruel. It's just it hasn't dawned on him that there's anyone outside himself to think about. If there are others who don't have bread, let them eat cake, right? So as we are reading this parable 2,000 years later, it's tempting for us to jump to the level of application, right? It's very tempting for us to sort of say, well, this is what it means. This is what it's telling me to do. Actually, uh, this parable causes all kinds of anxiety for modern Americans uh, because of the way that we construct our retirement. For most of us, the way that we save for retirement is not entirely different than the way that this man is saving for retirement. And I want to let that angst stick with us a little bit. It should trouble us a little bit that we are, most of us here anyway, are citizens of the wealthiest country on earth in the wealthiest time in human history. So I, I think it's okay that it troubles us a little bit. Most of us here seriously want to follow Jesus during this extremely challenging time. And so what we want to do when we look at this parable is to say, what is it telling me to do? 
And like I say, some have read into this parable a condemnation of the way that we do retirement. They would look at my 401k as it grows and says, essentially, this is a barn that you're building throughout your life that you hope to live off the excess one day and you shouldn't be doing that. You have probably known people who have made that choice to say, I think that's wrong, I'm opting out. You probably have strong feelings about this either way. Either you think that's right or you think that's completely weird. Because it's causing you a little anxiety to think about whether or not you should be doing that, which would mean a significant effort for all of us. So let me just stop here real quickly and be clear. Jesus has every right to ask us to reconsider our retirement plans. He does. It's not bad manners for the Son of God to bring us up short and ask us, what you're doing with that money? Do you want to do that, really? But it generates this huge amount of anxiety in us because of the way it might call forth something from us that we don't want called forth. And when we feel that anxiety, we just want someone to tell us what to do. What we always hope the preacher will say when this passage comes up is, this isn't really about your retirement. I can't do that exactly. But I will say this, I don't think that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Because I don't think this parable is saying, here's what you should do. I think the point Jesus is making is, here's what you should consider as you're deciding what to do. So, if I'm asking about the process that the man used to make the decision, what am I saying? I'm saying... The situation could have determined or dictated a number of faithful answers. There are a number of faithful things the man could have done. But he can only determine what's best to do as he's talking to someone besides himself. If he gets to know the poor in his community, for certainly there are poor in his community, the question, why do I have all this grain while so many are hungry? He may have found an answer to that question that he hadn't found before he got to know the poor. If this man had considered the opinions of his own family, they could have helped him know, Dad, this is the right time to retire, or Dad, not now. You can do so much if you keep working. There's these people you can help, and you could, you could make a different choice, Dad. But the fact is, he doesn't know about these choices because he's only talking to himself. There's so much in modern life that's built around flattering this presupposition we have that we are smarter than the other people in our lives. So much of modern humor is built around this. I don't know when it started, but the example most evident from my childhood and young adulthood was Seinfeld. Remember Seinfeld, the show? And the whole show revolved around Jerry kind of going through life as this normal guy while all these quirky people are around him. And Jerry looks out at the camera a lot as if to look at us and say, isn't this guy weird? (laughs) I'm the smartest person in the room at any given time. So much of that show's humor is, is built around watching his face and realizing, yes, we get it and others don't. How did I get to be surrounded by all these people who don't get it? And this is what this parable is like making plain in the way that Jesus puts words in this man's mouth. As I have an important decision to make, who do I trust? The poor? No. Friends? No. Family? No. Self? Yes. Now here's the problem. The parable ends 
rather tragically, the man dies that night. Now, the fact he dies that night doesn't make any one choice right or wrong. Right? Sometimes life ends when we don't expect it to. It doesn't mean that the decision to retire or not retire is better or worse because his life ended before he expected it to. But Jesus' point is this. He says, all these things that you have, whose will they be? Whose will they be? Now that should haunt us. (laughs) That should haunt us because this is the point when you talk only to yourself then no one around you is ready to inherit all of your hard work. It's not very clear about why you were doing what you were doing. You've made all these decisions about the grain and the barns, and all of them have revolved around you. It never even dawned dawned on you that your riches might impact someone beyond you. It never even dawned on you to ask others' opinions of what you should do with your work. And if your work is all about you, if your stuff is all about you, when you die and there is no you anymore then whose will these things be? When you do that sort of thing, you can't be surprised that your legacy dies with you. If you've set a legacy of self-centeredness, you can't be surprised when those who come after you bitterly fight and divide over what you have left behind. And here I imagine Jesus looking daggers at the man who had the misfortune to ask this question that prompted the whole parable. As he says to the crowd, basically, unless this is what you want for your future, you better think about your work now. So what's this parable mean for us? Well, I think we have to at least say at first that this parable is about money. There's a temptation to over-spiritualize something like this and say, well, it's not really about money, and it's about our hearts. And yes, right, that's true in a way. We'll talk about this some, but, but it really is about money. I mean, Jesus himself says, this parable is about greed. So there's something very clearly about money here. But I don't think it's something that we solve at the level of application. I'm not here to say, don't save for retirement. Instead, I think the question is, how are others involved in the ways that you make decisions about your money? There is a time to eat, drink, and be merry. And some of us have grown up in an evangelical subculture that was very suspicious of any fun that was not properly baptized. I can remember going to many Super Bowl parties where they said, we need to turn this off at halftime so we can have a devotion. We couldn't simply have fun, right? And I want to say this parable is not about uh, getting on us for eating and drinking and being merry. There are many, many scriptures we could point to about the importance of feasting and enjoying what God has given you and being thankful. So it's wonderful when people get together and celebrate weddings and the births of babies and vacations and holidays. Uh, It's even uh, wonderful, I think, when we get together and spend a bunch of money on a funeral to fly family in and to honor uh, honor people that we love and celebrate their memory. I think it's good to eat and drink and be merry. But learning how to balance that with the right kind of frugality and the right kind of simplicity is really difficult. And when we are the only people that we talk to about this, you know how easy it is to deceive ourselves. When we only talk to ourselves, think of the things we say to ourselves about our money. We say things like, 
Others have much more than me. Others are lucky, but I am not. When we are the only voices in the discussion, there is no one around to counter that and remind us, no, actually, most of us in this room are quite richly blessed. There's no one there to warn us when we're not really talking with integrity. There's no one there to remind us, no, this thing you're saying to yourself, you're saying for your own benefit, not because it's true. So I think here's the question about money. In what way do the poor actually figure into the way that you spend your money? Do you have a deep friendship with someone who is in grinding poverty? And would you be willing to share your decision-making process with them? If not, why not? Are you willing to let another person into your headspace, into your heart space, when you have to make decisions about money? Or, like the man in the parable, will you just talk to yourself? And you have to consider, if I will only talk to myself, whose will these things be? (laughs) What kind of legacy will I leave behind? So it's about money. But it's also about more than money. Because this desire that we have to only talk to ourselves and not gain the wisdom of others is not just something that happens when we talk about money, but it can happen when we talk about almost anything. It's a huge temptation to avoid the voices that would challenge us and to rely on the wisdom that we are seeking from voices that are either within us or simply a projection of what's in us. I was talking with a pastor once, and he was saying a man in his church had come to talk to him because he was struggling in his marriage. He was disappointed with his cruel and inattentive wife. He was thinking of having an affair, and he wanted to know what the pastor thought. You haven't met many pastors, but (laughs) the fact you're laughing is a good thing. I've known some pastors who would flatter some of those presuppositions. But this pastor said, you shouldn't do that. But he also commended him, and he said this, you can always tell what a person wants to do by who they ask for advice. He says, if you had gone to talk to your bartender for advice, I would know what you wanted to do. But you came to me instead, and that says a lot about the state of your heart. If that man had said, self, you have a casually cruel and inattentive and angry wife. What should we do about it? You know full well what he would have done. But that man knew that the pastor had something outside of him to teach him. And so he asked. He got outside of himself and allowed a different perspective in. And that's a difficult thing for the church to do today. I was thinking um, maybe the most compelling example in recent history in the church was our failure to be appropriately involved in the civil rights movements of the 1960s. I'm not condemning people here. I wasn't here in the 1960s, so this happened before I was born, and I'm not meaning to say it must have been easy. Why didn't we do the right thing? I had a friend who was a Southern Baptist pastor in that era, and uh, his church fired him on the spot for preaching integration. I understand that that must have been a very difficult time. 
Because what I imagine is that there were probably broad sympathies towards integration, but also very good people, pillars of the church, who opposed it or who said things like, this is a political issue, this is a social issue, this is not a gospel issue, this is not a kingdom issue. And taking those people on would have been very hard for a church. Because whenever there's an issue, and there are good people on both sides, it's hard to take a stand. But hear me, the failure to take a stand had consequences. Right? Martin Luther King wrote about it in the letter that he wrote from the Birmingham jail to the clergy of Birmingham, Alabama. He said he critiqued white churches that, quote, preferred the negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. What he was saying is, I know that white churches have the luxury of treating this as, quote, an issue on which good Christians can agree to disagree. He knew what happened when white churches worked first to preserve their peace rather than make a strong stand. I heard a professor once, uh, fairly recently, he talked about the difference between armchair issues and wheelchair issues. And armchair issues are those things that we can debate from the comfort of our armchairs. Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? Calvin's not here. He's not going to burn the church down. So we can debate Calvinism versus Arminianism in a way we might not have been able to several hundred years ago. So we can pull up a chair around a fireplace, pour a cup of coffee, cocoa. If you're not a Wesleyan, you can pour something even different than that. And you can talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism. And then after that discussion, we all go to bed and we wake up in the morning and we have breakfast together. Those are armchair issues. But wheelchair issues, said the professor, are those things that have impacted us deeply. And they have a much deeper urgency for us. Wheelchair issues get at our very core. Why did I get the injury that landed me in this wheelchair instead of someone else? Now, here's the thing. You and I both know what it's like when someone treats our wheelchair issues like armchair issues. What happens to a baby who is miscarried or is stillborn? Well, for 70 or 75% of you here today, that's an armchair question. That hasn't touched your life. You can process it with detachment. But if you dare treat it like an armchair question for the 25 to 30% of us who have experienced it, then that 25 or 30% will either politely or impolitely ask you to please be quiet. They might even ask you to leave the room because it's not an armchair question for them. With an armchair question, you can say, good people can disagree about this and still say in fellowship. But with a wheelchair question, that's still true, but it's not that easy. Because if you disagree with me about a wheelchair question, I'm going to need a deep relationship with you so that I can clearly see that the disagreement you have with me doesn't mean a lack of support for me. If you disagree with me about a wheelchair question, I'll say it again. I need a deep relationship with you so that I can see clearly that the fact you disagree with me doesn't mean that you don't support and love me. If the man in this parable thinks, it's better for me to retire than share my food with the poor, he better know the poor pretty well. And he gives no evidence that he does. Part of the way that we navigate these issues the best is that we listen to each other. 
We learn from each other. We don't just go and talk to ourselves, rely on our own wisdom, our own smarts. We don't just rely on whatever cable news network is a projection of all of our fears, biases, and knowledge base. We don't even rely only on the Bible because we recognize that we might not understand the Bible perfectly. Yes, the Bible is perfectly sufficient for faith and practice, but we are not perfectly sufficient to understand it or interpret it perfectly all the time. We need each other for that task. And we especially need the wisdom and the urgency that comes with people who experience these as wheelchair questions. That's what's going on with the parable. It's not just about the money, but the man is making an armchair decision for him that impacts a whole family and a whole community. It is a wheelchair question for them. Will I eat or will I die? Will I get something at all or will I starve? But this man says, self, what shall I do? Many of us have decided about what we think about many important issues using the method the man uses in the parable. Self, what do I think about abortion? Self, what do I think about universal health care? Self, what do I think about the Black Lives Matter movement? Self, what do I think? Did racism play a part in that shooting at the southern border yesterday? Self, what do I think about the role of LGBT people in the church? And we retreat to our closets. We pray and we fret about it. We ask voices who will tell us what we already wish to know. And very rarely are we brave enough to allow in a voice for whom these are wheelchair questions. When we make decisions this way, Here's what I'm building towards. We have to accept that, like the man in the parable, we are doing something to our legacy. If we demonstrate that our first concern is peace, preserving a fragile peace among believers within the church, then the people who are waiting for us to use our riches to feed the world are left wanting. When we demonstrate that our first concern is being inoffensive, then complicated people are just not going to feel welcome here, no matter what. I went to a conference this June. It was for gay people who are trying to live their lives within a traditional Christian sexual ethic. So either remaining celibate or taking on committed but non-sexual friendships or partnerships. And so many times I heard them say some variant of this. I just realized that my presence at that church was complicating things. And that in the end, they didn't really want me there. I mean, they wanted me there as long as I didn't ever talk about this reality in my life. They wanted me there as long as I acted like nothing was wrong. They wanted me there as long as I didn't ask inconvenient questions about their singles ministry. That's what happens when the church's primary goal is its own fragile peace. Complicated people feel like, I can't go there. I'm ruining the thing that they're after. And so some people leave altogether. (laughs) Who was it? Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, the line between good and evil doesn't just divide certain people on one side and those on the other. The line between good and evil goes through every human heart. And the line between non-complicated and complicated people goes through through, through every heart. 
It's not like there are some complicated people and the rest of us don't have any complications. Each of us is complicated in some way. So it's not just that when we do this, super complicated people leave. It's also that we begin to hide our complicated lives. We begin to divorce our church lives from our real lives. We leave the complicated stuff outside and then we take it up again when we go. And eventually, you know what? You do that long enough and you begin to wonder, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I doing this anyway? It's, this church thing is not answering the real questions of my life. My therapist answers the real questions of my life. My friend group answers the real questions of my life. Or I've even learned not to ask the complicated questions anymore. I just dull the pain with wine or sports. When the church will not concern itself with the real questions people are asking, the wheelchair questions, the world knows this. And some leave abruptly and altogether. And some of us leave imperceptibly, one piece of our heart at a time. But still... But still, there is this beautiful church, lowercase c church around us, capital C church all around the world. This beautiful church, this beautiful body, these beautiful buildings, this beautiful faith, this beautiful relationship with God that would transform us. But whose, whose will they be? Whose will they be? If we abandon the calling to seek the truth instead of our fragile peace, if we abandon our calling to love those who are dealing with wheelchair questions in a way that they can see as love, even when it's costly, what will our legacy be? And who will be left to inherit it? Whose will these things be? Whose will these things be? Gracious God, we thank you for your presence with us now and always. We hear this parable this morning as a word of challenge. We think of this man's foolish self-reliance and how the only result was his children bickering over the remains of his estate. We, too, are rich. We have been given so much financially and spiritually and it's scary to invite others into the question of what we should do with all these riches. We have so much at stake in already having been right in our decisions that we are afraid to discover we may have been wrong. Teach us, God, to trust that you love us not because we have done everything right, but simply because you are a God of love and we are your beloved children. Give us grace to ask the poor in body and the poor in spirit how they think our riches should be used. And if, as we do, we discover that there is something in us in need of conversion, give us grace to follow you without fear into the waters of conversion. Give us grace to seek the truth rather than comfort ourselves that we have it. And help us to find the joy in the fact that we are dying to self and living to you before that moment when our physical life is required of us. And help us to see a bit of the fruit of that difficult labor as we begin to rejoice in the legacy we leave. This we ask through Christ. Amen.